focus on. Good morning. Uh, my name is Keith Shorey. Last week in our text, we closed with the crowd choosing to have Barnabas released to them instead of Jesus, and I will continue the reading the account beginning in today with John chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it, is, it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. <clears throat> from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone of Pavement, and in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Appreciate that. Keith is, you know, he loves the stage, loves being the center of attention, right? Just proof, you guys can do it too, you know. Keith is a very humble man and a very faithful man, one who is strive to be available to the Lord and uh, fits and starts, right? This is the way it goes in the Christian life, and so the Lord is very pleased with him, and, and as are we. So thank you, Keith, for being willing to do that and to, to lead us into our time this morning. I, just before we get into our text, I wanted to just highlight an event that happened over the weekend that I just keep hearing so many great things about because we um, had been planning uh, John and Martha had been planning the uh, marriage conference for probably, what, 10 years now, as it feels like, right? But for the last year or so, and uh, you never know how it's going to be taken to these days. Are people going to come out and everything? And the um, the sign-ups were looking pretty strong, and the attendance was good, and then we fell on some sicknesses and things like that, and some people couldn't make it that had intended to be here. Um, and it's just the way that those things go, and yet it's still at the end result, it was this incredible time for so many people. And, and uh, we were almost late coming into the service this morning because my prayer huddle group that we meet with were talking so much about what they were getting out of that weekend and stuff. And so let's continue to pray for the, the building of marriages in the atmosphere of this church. I think all churches are benefited from uh, strong and biblical attention to shore up the, uh, the really what is often the backbone of the uh, of the church life, and that is strong families, strong marriages. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has a very specific way in which we're to go about doing marriage. And so the Bible is very clear on it, and there's a lot of great tools and resources that help us along the way. And this conference this weekend is just one of those examples. And so let's continue to pray for John and Martha as they, they lead us in this charge going throughout the year with different events. Um, I even understand that we do um, some follow-up kind of like quarterly part, potluck meals for those that came to the conference. And and uh, when they first told me they'd do that last year, they were like, yeah, we're going to invite people. I was like, good luck. 
it's lucky you got them to come out to a conference. They're not going to come out to have, and guess what? Like everybody that went to the conference came out and participated in those quarterly meals and uh, took place, and then they were able to instruct a little bit further. And so the Lord's doing, so I was teasing with the guys this morning going, I instantly went to my pastor's meetings and started bragging about my brilliant idea. This is, you know, after you have a conference, have quarter. No, I didn't do that. John and Martha really uh, knew what to offer and, and how to do that. And so we thank you guys for your leadership there. And let's continue again to pray uh, for the success. Would you join me? I know we just prayed, but I don't think we can do that too often. Let's just pray for the Lord's will in this. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for for doing what you do, Lord. You bring us closer to you. You draw us in gently. And sometimes, Lord, when we resist or sometimes we don't recognize your plan, Lord, you're patient with us. And yet you um, arrest our hearts as we've been seeing in these last several weeks in the Gospel of John. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would help us to be in tune with your spirit, that you would cause us to look for your leading and your moving in all aspects of life. But, Lord, in particular, I want to thank you for the work that was done this weekend in this marriage conference. God, I pray, Lord, for your, for your grace and for your wisdom and your instruction and your humility, Lord, to find its way into every marriage in this church. Lord, there's so much that we miss out on because we don't surrender our plans and our wills, our desires to you. And Lord, it seems like almost nothing tests that more than in marriage where we have two individuals coming under one roof and trying to build a life. And when that life is being attempted to be built for the individual, for selfish reasons, Lord, it's such a detriment to what you built it for. So as we bring this back to gospel roots, as we bring this back to your biblical plan, Lord, I pray you'd bless those efforts. But Lord, give your grace and give your leading to all those couples that they would have a special blessing for having learned uh, what you had for them this weekend. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm a, I'm a stupid movie buff. I love silly movies and I get that from my father. I remember he used to, you know, have like this side-splitting laughter at the dumbest stupid punchlines and all this kind of stuff. And so I love those dumb movies. And so one of our family favorites has become Napoleon Dynamite. And uh, if you haven't watched that, the first time you watch it off of the pastor's recommendation, you're going to be like, why did they think this was good and funny? I don't get it. It's always the second, third, fifth, or tenth time you go, okay, this is a classic. This is great. And I keep thinking about Uncle Rico, so those of you that know the, the old movie now. And uh, Napoleon is just so frustrated that Uncle Rico is taking up space and like invading their lives and everything. And Napoleon, the nephew, said, yells out to his uncle, like, you need to leave. Grandma says you need to leave because you're, I forget what the line is, but you're, you're messing up everyone's lives and you're eating all their steak. And he's sitting there out there throwing a football and he's like, I can do what I want. It's a free country. And, and, and every time I see that line, I'm like, I remember being eight years old and saying that all the time. We would say that to our friends. They would try to get us to do something else. Stop doing that. You can't do that anymore. We're like, I can do what I want. It's a free country. We always threw that line out there. So as an eight-year-old, this has nothing to do with Napoleon Dynamite, but as an eight-year-old, I would make that statement of like, I live in this wild, vast freedom with no restrictions, but my life. I was like, I got to get home. My parents are going to get mad. It's going to get dark soon. I, it's a free country. I can't go wherever I want. I can't drive myself. I don't have enough money to afford the things that I want. But I'm living in this free country. But I have all these imposed restrictions on me. So I was living in this fantasy that because I didn't want to do what those kids were telling me to do, I was living in freedom. And it wasn't true. I want you to imagine this kind of silly, childish demeanor as we go through our text because there's a lot of us that brag about having this freedom i can do whatever i want it's the pinnacle of the human experience if you listen to the philosophers of our day through tiktok and facebook and things like that that if you can just live in this freedom of not worrying about what anybody else thinks or everything you can do what you want that therefore you've arrived but is it real is it a lie is it just a charade don't we have to still confide, uh, confide, or aren't we still confined to uh, government rules? Do what I want. It's a free country. Try saying that as you're doing 95 miles an hour down the interstate and see how free you are. 
Or maybe you say, I can do what I want. I live in a free country, but you don't have those kinds of resources. You can't rub two nickels together or something. So can you really? Or whatever restrictions or a lack of knowledge of how to do something or even the inconsistency of, of getting in your own way as we so often do. The reality is, is that we brag and we boast and we claim this freedom that isn't really a part of our experience. And part of the attack on Christianity, part of the walking away from the lessons of Christ and even the belief in who Jesus is, is based off of this false impression that we're free to do whatever we want. You are, you can make that choice, but it doesn't mean you're free from consequence. Real freedom has been made available to the whole world. But most won't recognize it until the opportunity has passed them by. And that's what I want us to see in our text today. We need to take the time. We need to recognize that freedom is standing right before us instead of passing on it. And this is, of course, what every character in the drama of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion is guilty of. Annas and Caiaphas, we were introduced to as the high priest. One was the retired high priest, but he keeps the title because it's just like an honorarium kind of thing or an honor kind of thing. And then Caiaphas is the current acting high priest, and they were the ones kind of stirring up the whole thing against Jesus. This is the plan that God used to sacrifice his son for the sins of all mankind is that those who could have seen him coming miles and miles away those that could have benefited the most for jesus being who he claimed to be decided to reject him outright because he was a threat to their power their prestige their income all of the things that jesus was kicking against as he was leading people to follow him they were jealous they were angry And so they were acting kind of like a family of mobsters, we said last week, that while these great and godly men, as far as society was aware of, they were controlling the family business. It's like when Jesus says that, um, you know, when he went into the temple and was throwing the tables upside down and kind of freaking out on everybody because they were extorting people for the money changers. And uh, it was reducing their, their sales of their sacrificial animals and all this kind of stuff because they were starting to follow Jesus. And they're like, hey, he's not good for business. People are starting to see he's poking holes in our leadership and our authority. He's making us look silly in the synagogue. And all of this was a challenge to them. So they rejected him. Jesus is proving at every step that he's not the one in captivity. He's allowed himself to be arrested. But it's those they think that think they've captured him are the ones needing to wake up and realize that they're actually in Jesus' custody and the opportunity for them is to just stay there. Instead of wrestling out, instead of walking away, stay in Jesus' company, uh, custody. As you and I can attest, it's the best place to be. But they were imprisoned by their desire for power and control. It wasn't just the high priest. It wasn't just even the legal system coming from Rome that they had to answer to. But it was Judas as well who betrayed him because there was an opportunity to be had. There was a wave that he could ride. And when Jesus was proving not to be that wave that he could ride all the way into power or prominence or something along those lines, he jumped off that wave and went to the high priest instead and said, I'll sell him out for you. What will you give me for it? Peter, even a devout follower of Jesus, one of his closest friends, still took his opportunity when he had the chance to say, I don't really know him because there was a threat to him personally. What I'm hoping we see as we go through this gospel account is, yes, we are seeing Jesus marching towards our salvation. Yes, we are seeing him carrying our cross loaded with all of our sin. But we're also seeing our own propensity towards sin and denial and rejection in each of these characters. And that's the thing that instead of us feeling bad when we leave here going, oh, I'm no better than Judas. or We get to walk into Jesus' grace and say, thank you, Father. Because even though that's the type of person I would have been left left to myself, you've rescued me. You've forgiven me. And unfortunately, this is what's being offered to these men, and they reject it because they craved what everybody else did. 
Freedom from having to perform and jump through the hoops or freedom from threats and consequences, the things that might come to haunt them if they don't do a good enough job or freedom from their own failures. But what they didn't recognize is they needed freedom from their own sin and all of those other things would follow. So let's get into our text in just a moment to see that real freedom is only found in one name. In one name alone, it's the name that they are rejecting. They should have seen this coming because many of them were students of the, of the scriptures. And so Isaiah 9, 6, a passage that we love to share at Christmas time, told them, warned them, prophesied to them that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, in Prince of Peace. It's clear from this prophecy that the Messiah, when he comes, he'd be loaded with authority. All authority, all power were given, and they were given in the person of Jesus Christ, who has been the only one to come claiming to be the Messiah and carried it all the way through. And many would say, well, he still failed like all the other false messiahs, but none of them healed like he did. None of them made the claims that he made. None of them went into a grave and came out. None of them were witnessed by over 500 people at one point to say, no, 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 he came out. We saw him walking. All the other ones just died in their legacy. Jesus was the one given all authority and power, the real messiah. And the following actions from Jesus, I'll put captors in quotes here, was really an unwitting acknowledgement to the reality of his deity. I want us to go slowly through this passage and see some of the things that they do and say to Jesus that prove to us, as we get to look back on this, they were talking to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the very Son of God. So let's look at some of these titles, not necessarily the exact ones from Isaiah 9-6, but the titles that have been given to Jesus before and after this time period. Let's first examine Jesus as King of Kings. Let's go back to our text that Keith had read for us. In verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We'll talk about what that means as much as we can. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I I find no guilt in this man. This flogging, this beating, this scourging that Pilate would have been inflicting on him was the, the same kind. There were various levels that the Romans would inflict on people. And the one most associated with crucifixion was the one that was going to do the most damage. And uncharacteristically uh, characteristically here, because the Romans cared very much about a proper execution of law. They were very careful to make sure that their, their cases were airtight, that they could back up their decisions and things. And so when the Jews were coming, the leaders there were saying, uh, we caught him saying stuff and doing stuff. And they were doing it in the middle of the night, which was against their law and all this stuff. The Romans, Pilate in particular, was concerned, like, these guys aren't doing clean practice of law here. So uncharacteristically here, Pilate orders an, an association with crucifixion before he's even determined that he would be crucified, which was this flogging. And this was the worst of all kinds of beatings that the Romans would do. And perhaps you've heard the, the brutal descriptions. Perhaps you've seen it play out in the Passion of the Christ movie. And so a lot of those images and things we can't describe in great detail, but just know that there were so many aspects of this uh, beating that were, that were the most brutal kind of form of torture that anybody 
could face as he's being whipped. He's being whipped with leather cords that were intentionally kind of uh, um, uh, laced with uh, um, metal objects sharp that were meant to grab and to tear. And, and they were ordered, they, they agreed as a society, they said we would do up to 40 of these lashes, but in order to make sure they weren't guilty of going over, they would always go one less. So they would exercise 39 of these brutal lashes. And, and the part that sticks out to me the most is you've got these soldiers who are kind of waiting around for some action. And they have to have a certain amount of mindset here to be good at this job, right? And I don't need to go into a lot of detail, but think about the kind of person who who can punch the clock, do this kind of uh, torture to a human body, punch the clock again, go home and put their feet up. And that's what these guys were doing. But the part that kind of registers with me is they would go until they were physically exhausted. What does it take for these professional torturers to lose their steam and to lose their strength and have to take a break while Jesus himself, who is, who is roped and chained to this, to this post as he's being filleted before them? What effort are they putting into it that they have to take a breather? And even as they're doing this and they're starting to run with the whole theme, oh, that's right, we're punishing the, the king of the Jews. And so they just kind of keep going with the mockery and they say, oh, well, every king needs a crown. And, and even imagining their own emperors on the, the, on, on every coin pictured with that crown, they were like, we want, we want this character to, to look like a king too. So they fashion a crown of, of massive giant thorns. And they place it on his head. And, and again, my mind goes back to that scene I've seen, seen so many times in The Passion of the Christ where the, the soldier, as he's carrying it over to Jesus, he accidentally pricks his finger and he goes, ow, like that. Like that one little thorn was more discomfort than he had prepared to face that day. And he places that thorn on Jesus' head and just to, to make matters worse, takes the, takes the rod and presses it in even further on him. Well, every king needs a, needs royal colors, right? So what can we put on Jesus that will make him look like a king? And, and no doubt they would have had faded red, red robes or cloaks that the soldiers would have used. And so they go and grab one of those and throw it on him. And then they start just mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Look at him. Isn't he so great? They're having fun. There's no consequence to them. Genesis 3, as part of the curse on mankind, reminds us. God said, cursed is the ground because of you, because of, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, because of the deception of Satan. In pain you shall um, eat of it all the days of your life. In verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Warren Wearsby says that sin had brought thorns and thistles into the world. So it was only fitting that the creator wear a crown of thorns as he bore the sins of the world on the cross. And not only would that crown of thorns be, be pressed into his skull as a mockery of his kingship, but that robe would eventually get ripped off after those wounds had congealed and dried and opening those wounds afresh. And not only were they mocking Jesus for claiming to be a king, but they had no respect for the Jewish people either. So they're, in a sense, mocking, saying, this is the best king the Jews could come up with. Pilate, though, has another alternative. He's bringing out the flogged, scourged Jesus so that the crowds, and in particular Caiaphas, will back off a little bit. Pilate, as we said last week, is really wrestling with the dilemma of how do I do this? I'm already, I'm already, um, you know, probably one mistake away from being removed. And by being removed in that situation probably means being killed. And the Jews had the communication authority to be able to go over Pilate's head and say, he's not managing things well in our district, you know. So he's got all of those concerns, but then he's also got this, how are we handling the law? I don't want to start having the reputation of someone who skips process and doesn't handle things the right way. Pilate's got all of this going on, and so he's devised a plan. If I beat him senseless 
and present him in front of the, the crowd this way, maybe then they'll say, okay, look, message received. He's not going to do anything else. He's learned his lesson. We'll call the whole thing off and walk away from this. Then Pilate's thinking that would be a brilliant strategy. I'd get out of this altogether. But that's not what they do, is it? As soon as they saw him, they got even more vehement. Crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, out of just frustration, he knows they can't take him themselves and crucify him legally. The Romans had stripped that power away from the Jewish leaders. So he's just kind of exasperated. He's like, well, you deal with them yourselves then. Shouts that out to them. See, Pilate is trying to demonstrate some sympathy. He's encountered Jesus one-on-one. Something's trying to sink into Pilate's world. So he offers sympathy instead, but sympathy is no substitute for surrender. You see, it's, it, Pilate's just acting on human nature. There's a general goodness that falls over all mankind that the more you see victimization or the more you see suffering or everything, something in our heart breaks for that and we feel bad for the victim. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all moved to do something about it, does it? Pilate is feeling bad for Jesus. Pilate is conflicted with the fact he doesn't honestly see anything that this guy's guilty of. He certainly doesn't see him as a threat to Rome, so he doesn't want to deal with this. And so he wants to, he wants to have a broken heart for Jesus, and hopefully the people will too and walk away. But that was Pilate's opportunity to surrender to him. We had seen from Peter, when Peter denied Jesus, that that's part of who we are. As we're born, as we're, as we're entering into this world, we enter with a sinful nature that, that when push comes to shove, will seek to protect its own. That will seek to take care of itself. And so Peter needed to be rescued from that, needed to be forgiven from that. Pilate had the opportunity, but instead, when push came to shove, it was about to turn like, okay, I could do the right thing here. Instead, Pilate does the self-preserving thing, because that's what humans do apart from the rescue of Christ. Pilate had no idea really who he was dealing with. Maybe bits and pieces are starting to occur to him, but still, he's so blinded with what he needed to do to get out of the situation. I just want to jump for a second to a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy to hear some of the language that after the fact is saying, this is who Pilate was dealing with, and yet he had no idea. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy 6, He says, I charge you in the presence of God, Timothy, who gives life to all things. That is, that is ascribed to the same power that is bloodied and beaten in front of power, uh, in front of Pilate, that he gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I'm charging you, Timothy, is what he's saying here in verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is. Now, if Pilate had recognized this, imagine the the outcome being different. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the language of command. This is the language of real authority, real power, and ultimately real freedom. Paul is telling Timothy, be ready to report to your king. He's coming. You will salute. You will respond. You will submit. Pilate has him right before him, bloodied and beaten, is not recognizing this at all. In that passage that we just read in 1 Timothy, there was a tiny little word in there that just kind of buried in the text. The phrase was the appearing of our Lord. And that word appearing in the Greek is where we get the word epiphany. It means a glorious manifestation, like God really showed up. It was it was uh, undeniable, the glory of God before us. That's what the appearing of our Lord looks like. In the Greek terms, it would be like a God has shown up. This will help us understand where Pilate goes next with this whole interaction. Let's go to verse 7. Back in John chapter 19. The Jews answered him and says, Well, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. 
So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So he runs back into his headquarters and he says, hey, uh, tell me again, where are you from? What's going on with Pilate here is he's starting to hear this rumblings of, wait a second, you said king of the Jews. I didn't hear anything about son of a God. That's how Pilate just heard that statement. And while Pilate is a man of law and reason and calculating opportunity and all those things, he's also a Greek. And the Greeks believed in this interaction that the gods could have with mankind and that there would be beings that would be like sons of these gods. And what if he was messing with one right now? He's like, you could have shared that title before I had him scourged. That would have been helpful. Pilate starts shaking in his sandals a little bit. I got to go interview this guy again. I got to find out where did you say you're from again? It's not a mystery to us. We've been following this linea- this line of, of uh, title giving, in, especially in the book of John. John the Baptist had said back in chapter 1, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In, a, in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says in John chapter 3, 18, whoever believes in him, that is in me, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus is not hiding that title. Others are ascribing it to him. He is the son of God. And Pilate's hearing this for the first time saying, ah, I wasn't aware that this was the claim. I got to investigate this. You see, this is what separates Jesus from, from everybody else. This is what makes Christianity unique from every other religious system is that God in human form came down to man to provide the payment for the penalty of our sin that we couldn't provi- uh, pay for ourselves, that we couldn't provide for ourselves. And, and even though he was born in human skin, even though he was born of the Virgin Mary, he still is by very nature God. I have two sons myself. They were born in the same kind as me. They are human being males. They are sons in that regard. As dogs and cats and others have litters and things like that, they are born in the same nature. And so if one is, in our understanding of all this, born from God, they are a son of God. This is who Jesus is, though no beginning and no end. He is by very nature God. So the Jews know what they're picking on him. The leaders know that this is a serious charge and worthy of his execution if he's wrong. So that's why Caiaphas says, hey, um, you may not be aware of this, but if anybody claims to be the son of God, we are allowed to put them to death and snuff that thing out. And that comes all the way from the Old Testament in Leviticus 24. If you blaspheme, if you speak in error or offensively against the name of God, you can be put to death. But we know what's going on here, don't we? We know what the motivation of Caiaphas is. We know what the the Pharisees are trying to do. We know what the council of the Sanhedrin is trying to pull off, and that is the execution of the threat. And so this idea of godliness, we're just trying to protect the name of God, we know is a cloak to cover their greed. And as a side note, this is why you see consistently through Scripture, even into the New Testament, that God is much heavier handed on leaders who should know better and mislead and steer people away from the truth. Even people in my position who are called to the pastor who are preaching and teaching those that there's a strict warning that if I'm not careful with the word of God that I receive more so of that judgment that would come for being wrong. Jesus is is harsh and direct with these Pharisees. John the Baptist, harsh and direct. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. But to everybody else who's caught up in the system, who's sort of what we would say is like ignorantly naive or just misled or unbelieving, there's so much patience and compassion. Truth gets to them, but it's dealt in a much softer kind of velvet or glove than than it is for those that should know better. Those that have been studying the scriptures, those that have the power, the position of power over the people. 
So let's go back to Pilate. Pilate's thinking, have I just uh, offended? Have I just beaten a son of a God? He has to wrestle. He has to square this away, this title of Jesus. But we also see him as Lord of Lords. So how does Jesus respond to Pilate's question? Well, Jesus knows that Pilate's already admitted he's not after truth. He's after an escape. So Jesus gave him no answer. The proverb says, uh, Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And then right after that, it says, answer a fool according to his folly. So you work that out. But Jesus knew what it meant, and he knew exactly when and how to use that. Pilate, in a very disingenuous, kind of fearful way, because he thought he was upsetting the superstitious order and everything. Hey, are you one of these God kind of half-being sort of whatever things and stuff? And Jesus, I could almost picture him just looking, going, you're derailing, pal. You're getting further and further away from a solution. What are you talking about? You had an opportunity to hear truth. You had me in your in your in your uh, uh, area in your office quietly. We could have just talked one on one. And when I said truth is before you, if you just believe in it and you just snuffed it off, ah, what's truth? Who knows? You don't know. How maddening to an opportunist like like Pilate. Jesus has a chance to keep talking and saying, "Wow, that really hurt. I don't want to go through anymore. Now I'm jumping ship. I'm sorry about the whole Son of God thing. Sorry about the Messiah stuff." He had an opportunity to respond that way. Pilate would have. Pilate was an opportunist, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate kind of rages from within and says to him in verse 10, will you not speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? It's a free country. Do whatever I want. Can you, Pilate? Are you that free? Are you as big a man as you claim to be? Now, you and I, we've done our homework. We know all the restrictions and all the things weighing on Pilate's mind, but he doesn't know Jesus knows this. Don't you know I'm the big deal in town? All of this that you just experienced was at my command. I can tell those guys to stop anytime I want. I can tell them to go. I can do whatever I want. It's free country. And Jesus, again, kind of looking at him like, are you really as free as you claim to be? No, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. This is what we've been talking about, right? That Jesus is not the victim of anyone's schemes. He's orchestrated this whole thing so that he could sacrifice for you and me. That he could lay his life down for even them, his accusers. He's in control of all of this. And again, he's saying to Pilate, you're missing it. You are so out of control in this situation. You have so little authority in this. The only authority you have is the fact that my father has paved the way for this all to happen. Therefore, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I would love to camp out on that phrase a little bit that he has the greater sin. Unfortunately, we just don't have time. If that intrigues you, it should. It's kind of a fascinating thing to think about, but it's a little bit outside of the main thought that we're carrying this morning. But he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who's he talking about? I don't think we have to look any farther than Caiaphas, who is the one with the most authority on the religious side, the one who should have seen that he was the Messiah and still sold him out to crucify him, to execute the very Son of God. But at the same time, please take note that Jesus didn't say, so Pilate, you're excused. Even though you don't have the authority, even though this is more Caiaphas's fault, so you're good. He says, lesser sin. Okay? Pilate was under pressure from the Jewish leaders. He knew that one more complaint might him, get him in trouble with the emperor, Tiberius, who is, was becoming more and more well-known for taking out people who were a threat to him or people he saw as incompetent. He was starting to hear the rumors or see the headlines on Rome Weekly or something that Tiberius knocked off another one. Why? Because he was getting a little too close to the to the throne or whatever it was. And so Pilate knows all this. He's an opportunist. As we said before, he's under pressure of good Roman law, making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And then he's got this kind of thing that this bride the little love of his life told him a few days before i had a bad dream 
And I was told, you should have nothing to do with this righteous man. Pilate does not have the authority to do what he wants to Jesus, and he knows it. His soul is sinking. But he's scheming. He's thinking, how do I get out of this? How do I even get this guy out of this? What do we do? That's partially why Jesus says to him, hey, look, you can't control all this. This is coming from above. And he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I want to just say this, though, about this scheming and this opportunistic mindset. Our values are revealed by the opportunities that you and I take advantage of. I think that's what needs to hit home to us as we evaluate the life of Pilate is that because he was looking for an angle out, we need to examine our own hearts. What opportunities do you and I, are we tempted to take advantage of that the consequences of that, the wisdom of that start to lessen in our mind because, oh, well, who's looking? It's a free country. I can do what I want. I have the authority in this situation. Rather than taking the time to walk down that line a little bit in your imagination, like what restrictions will I run into? What consequences will come down on me? How does that, how does that change the scales in which I'm valuing this opportunity before me? You see, Christ, Christ followers do things differently. We don't look at what can I get away with now. It's what is allowing me to set myself up to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords forever and ever to be in his presence, forgiven and set free. That all the opportunities, the temptations, the things that come in this life don't have as much appeal to me because this isn't the life I'm practicing for. This isn't the world that I'm living in. I'm living in a different kingdom. Pilate would have done himself really well to have learned these things. But God had a plan and it was marching forward. In two places in the book of Revelation, we see this idea of Jesus being the Lord of Lords. In Revelation 17, it says, they'll make war on the Lamb. Now imagine, Pilate is sitting here, but before the one that he just beat, looks as weak as anything, pathetic, broken down, tired, exhausted, near death. That's what often would happen during that scourging, is many of the victims would die. Jesus is that close. But this is the one that he just scourged, the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. A couple chapters later in Revelation, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. He's only losing in this moment so that he can win the entire war. Jesus is the only one in which we find real freedom. But real freedom costs more than you and I can save for, what we can earn, what we can muster up, the ability to pay for. It's too expensive for us in our humanness. And these men were in the presence of the way, the truth, and the life. But to follow him, to just break their will, to just believe in him and follow him, costs them way too much. Can you imagine, humanly speaking, Caiaphas going back on it now? Oh, seeing how he suffered, maybe he is the son of God. Guys, we're calling it all off. Imagine politically what that would look like for Caiaphas. Wait, you ginned us all up. You got us ready to go. And this is what your, what your exit strategy is. You're just going to start believing. You're going to admit that you are wrong. Imagine Pilate being walked into a corner and all of a sudden just going, you know what? I don't care about my career. I don't care about my future. I don't care if Tiberius comes after me. This man ain't guilty. He's going free and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. They've gone too far, humanly speaking. It mattered more for Pilate to be a friend of Caesar, as Caiaphas yells out in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king, which this guy clearly did, speaking of Jesus, opposes Caesar. Pilate, do you want to be guilty of of propping up someone who's threatening the emperor's throne. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he said, enough, I got to make a decision here. So he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It, it sunk in deep. It was the straw that broke the camel's back that Caiaphas yells out, are you sure you want to go against Caesar in this? 
You're no friend of his if you do this. So the political angling is what finally just revealed that's what Pilate was in it for. And he says, yep, this will be a threat to Rome, be a threat to my position. Confucius divine cowardice as knowing what is right and not doing it. Pretty straightforward. But Pilate, the opportunist, let the fear of man, as it's biblically known, beat out his conscience. Pilate was afraid of losing his position or his popularity, afraid of losing his physical safety. Did any of these things ever occur to us? We don't care about being accepted, right? We don't care about making it through the day alive. We don't care about our health or any of those kinds of things. We're not ever tempted, it would seem, to cut corners or to make um, uh, any of those um, concessions so that we can just get by, right? Belief sometimes is, is costly. Freedom is costly. And to walk in it means there's a lot of sacrifice that would have to happen. And sometimes it's just hard to let that go. Tenney says that Pilate sacrificed truth for what he thought was security and lost both. It mattered more to Pilate to be a friend of Caesar, but what Caiaphas, the religious leader, ended up proving is that he would prefer to be a friend of hell. Let's go to verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Preparation is the day before the the, the Sabbath day where they do nothing. So that Friday before they're getting all their provisions ready so they can take Saturday off. This happens to be the preparation of the Passover week. It was about the sixth hour, a lot of debate about timing. If you look between John and Mark and there's answers to all of that. So if you're geeking out a little bit on the text and the precision of this, you know, that's a fun study to do. I would emphasize though, the word that John uses here is about he wasn't looking at his watch going, yeah, you know, it's, it's about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. This baffles me. If he's trying to get them to calm down, why does he keep egging them on by saying, here's your king? How offensive would that be to these prideful Jews, right? But he still presses it in. Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, so shall I crucify your king? Just keeps driving it in. It's like he can't help himself. The chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. I don't even know all the Jewish customs. I wasn't even alive in that time. And I still kind of look at that statement and go, ooh, are you sure you want to have said that out loud? We have no king but the Roman Caesar? You've done nothing but push against Roman occupation. You've done nothing but but fight them tooth and nail because they've offended you. They've taken this whole emperor thing to be equal with God. There's all kinds of things that you being rooted in uh, God as your father have found all kinds of things to be offended by this Roman uh, opposition or occupation. And yet you, because you want to win, are willing to say, hey, we're with you guys. This guy doesn't fit. We only have one king, and that's Caesar. I just wouldn't want to be standing next to Caiaphas as a fear of lightning being struck here. Let me rework the, the quote from Tenney from earlier before we use Pilate's name, but now Caiaphas sacrificed truth for what he thought was security and lost both. What did we say before? Our values, what really matter to us, are revealed by the opportunities that we take advantage of. Caiaphas should have aligned himself with the one true God. He's sold himself to the whole population of Jewish people as the one person you can trust to represent God to the people. And he sells out in a moment. Why? Because we've got this right where we want him. We've got Pilate just about ready to crack. And if we can just push him over the edge, then Jesus is gone. We don't have to worry about this anymore. I know what will put him over the edge. Let's tell him that we also are surrendered to, which would be the equivalent of worship, the king of the Romans. And I, and, I, and I think there's, there's a whole political rabbit trail I could go off here that I won't. But I think that that also says enough that we need to think about at the times that we cave on our clear biblical principles for the sake of winning in the here and now. 
as though we can control outcomes? Wouldn't we rather be standing on the side of having integrity and being honest and pure before the Lord rather than just saying, hey, look, we won. The Jews could say, hey, look, we won. And what did they do? They marched Jesus to the cross. The question for us is, do we live in real freedom? It will be evidenced by how you and I walk through this world now. And if you're like me, there are times where you'll have seasons or stretches where you feel like I am walking in God's freedom. I feel his forgiveness. I The, the daisies are coming up and the red carpet's being rolled out. And this Christian thing is easy. And there'll be other days where you're kind of tempted and you're walking in that other kingdom. You're starting to find yourself in that realm of restriction and because it looks so promising and the straight and narrow is so boring and this is so much more appealing and so you dive into those waters a little bit and then all of a sudden the restrictions come and that that feeling of i can do whatever i want it's a free country comes back to roost really quick and saying but you're not free it doesn't pave the way it doesn't roll out the red carpet it doesn't provide what it's promising you it happens so often often we fall on the grace of the lord to say i i erred i walked off it was so appealing but then i met uh, those those restrictions, I met those consequences. Why would I wander off from you, Lord? We so often settle for a false freedom because we strive for position in life or we want acceptance from other people. We just want safety. We don't want this threat of of punishment or anything like that looming over us or we just want some peace in life. It's what we will, what opportunities we will take to get those things will reveal what kind of freedom we're living in. And I would imagine that, again, you're like me when you're walking in that false freedom. You find it quite exhausting over time. It seems like release. It seems like freedom. It seems like all those things. But it just wears us down because it's not putting our trust in the provision of the Lord. And and it doesn't even really pay off. No, instead, we're given the opportunity, like Caiaphas, like Pilate, like Judas, like Peter, like any of these guys, we have the opportunity to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the very Son of God, as the only real path to freedom. Freedom from what? From our sin. From this gravitational pull of the world that just kind of keeps us stuck and and locked in the quagmire. We find forgiveness for our sins, and though even though all of life doesn't get easy from this point on, we find that the most compelling thing that we can be offered is a freedom for all of eternity. And so we take it, and we learn to walk in it. Don't reject truth, capital T, for what this world clings to. If it's one thing that most of us in this room can say is that the world is lying to us, that the system that is bent towards explaining away God, replacing God, has no better alternative. It always sounds good up front, but it always ends in shackles and lies. And it is the destroyer of souls. It's the great scheme of Satan. He knows he can't win the ultimate war, so he just wants to win the little battles along the way. You and I would do well not to fall victim to it. Would you stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the plan of salvation that's been laid out for us. Lord, I thank you for the endurance of your son. And I thank you, Lord, that because Jesus saw the work through, that thousands of years later we can still claim the truth of forgiveness still available, still powerful. Lord, is ultimately what we need. We need rescue from the sinfulness of our hearts. And whether or not our life gets peachy from that point is not really up to us to determine to even fret about. So Lord, I pray that that we would be believers in this room. I pray, Lord, that we would be followers of you, that we would sacrifice all the little temptations that come along the way, the things that so naturally lie to us and they, they speak to a place of our hearts that, um, that, that makes so much sense. I pray, Lord, that we would forego that, that we would push that off because your truth, your freedom, help us to live in shackles no longer. And thank you, Lord, for the power to do it through your spirit, we pray. Amen.